We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Hello, friends. This is Jason Estopanoff. Welcome to the Layman's Lounge podcast, which is a ministry of thelaymanslounge.com, where we do our best to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. So like all you busy moms and grouchy dads, um, this is for you. Yeah, like I said, I'm Jason Estopanoff. I'm a business process analyst and a YWAMer from Kona, Hawaii. And that's Joe Humphreys, an appliance salesman in Mount Vernon, Washington. What's up, Joe? I'm super excited to be here. And it's been super busy because of COVID. Everyone's at home breaking their appliances. And so I'm selling twice as much as I usually am. So, All right. Get those toaster ovens out, brother. <laughs> uh, today we have the honor of having the Reverend Dr. Gregory Beal. Dr. Beal, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. How are you doing today, Dr. Beal? Oh, I'm persevering. <laughs> nice. How's your microwave doing, Dr. Beal? Microwave, uh, we got a new one last summer, so this one, this one's doing okay so far. <laughs> Good, so it should last about one more year. <laughs> yeah, so it broke down last summer, but yeah, hopefully it'll it'll work. I, I have to rewarm my coffee too much. <laughs> well, we're super excited to have you here. Um, the The big thing that was a struggle for me, just as I studied the Bible, was that the Old Testament seems so old, and the New Testament even seemed like it had a different tone to it than the Old Testament. And you've been laboring with your publications to try to make that apparent difference seem seamless. Um, you've been teaching for 40 years, <laughs> which Ooh. is a long time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> then uh, you didn't need to count that up before the audience. <laughs> In dog years. Uh, let's just... <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, that's more. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, you multiply seven times uh, 40. We're in bad shape. That sounds like <laughs> an Old Testament prophecy, like 77 Good times answer. 40 or something. That's right. That's right. That, that would be the time, uh, prayerfully, when my eternal rest starts. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, from what I can count, you've written and co authored about 16 books, most are, like I just said, laboring to make the Old and New Testament seem seamless. The most recent one is uh, just came out in February. It's called The Story Retold, A Biblical Theological Introduction to the New Testament. Um, and what's unique about this publication is there's a lot of New Testament inter introductions out there. All of them are seeking to use an element all of them want to use an element that helps interpret the New Testament. So some New Testament introductions will be uh, trying to use the culture. Um, some lean more on linguistics. But this book, The Story Retold, they are using the Old Testament to help interpret each book of the New Testament. So as you buy it and open it up, you'll see it goes from Matthew to Revelation and its aim is to use the Old Testament 
to interpret the new and it's extremely helpful. Um, why have you published so much on this topic as a, early as a Christian? Did you personally feel a disconnect between the Testaments or did you just see a gap academically? What has motivated you to spend so much time on this topic? Well, uh, partly uh, it's due that when I became a Christian, when I was 18 years old, that um, I immediately um, came into contact with a church and, and believers who, um, who believed that the prophecies of the Old Testament about uh, the Messiah's coming uh, really were not fulfilled uh, in the first century. They were fulfilled in terms of his death, but not uh, uh, the coming of his kingdom. And um, so when they rejected, when the Jews rejected Jesus, that was seen as uh, a time when, uh, while it looked like the prophecies of the kingdom were going to be fulfilled, when they rejected him, the end time clock stopped. And um, uh, they, they weren't fulfilled, for the most part, the kingdom prophecies of the Messiah. And so um, the church then arose as sort of a, a parenthesis uh, uh, area where God was working now with Gentiles and a minority of Jews in the church. But a time would come, this was the teaching I was confronted with, a time would come when um, the church would be raptured out of the world and God's end time clock would start again with Israel, ethnic Israel, real Israel, and um, they would eventually be saved by the Messiah and rule with him in the kingdom. And so I began to see in my, my studies of the Bible when I was in seminary that um, again and again in the Gospels, uh, it, it says the kingdom of God has come. Or, or even with the parables, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. And it's, 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 it appeared to be that this was speaking of uh, the kingdom from the Old Testament as beginning fulfillment and as being present. And, um, but I was told, no, that, that, that's referring to a present heavenly kingdom that's different from the Messianic prophecies. But I began to see it wasn't different uh, because a lot of these kingdom uh, statements about the kingdom being present, beginning fulfillment, were allusions to the Old Testament itself about the kingdom. And so that began to cause me to see, oh, yeah, I see that actually the end time clock didn't stop. Uh, the kingdom was being introduced, but you had to have eyes to see and ears to hear because uh, the first phase of it was through suffering and an ironic defeat and victory at the cross, capped by resurrection. And then at the resurrection, uh, Christ is more formally reigning than he was uh, in his suffering body during his ministry. And so that really um, sort of changed me uh, just to see that there's not a cutoff between the old and the new. We don't have to wait for those prophecies to be fulfilled thousands of years from the time of Christ. They began fulfillment in Christ. In fact, if you look at the book of Matthew again and again, it says this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill. So the prophecies about the kingdom and uh, about Israel are beginning fulfillment. Uh, but 
what happens is that uh, Israel rejects Christ, and so Jesus himself becomes uh, the ideal true Israelite. Um, and all those who identify with him, whether Jew or Gentile, become true Israelites in him. They don't replace Israel because Jesus is the true Israelite. And so he is the continuation of true Israel. Israel is reduced down to one person, Jesus Christ, because of the disobedience. If you want to, in the Gospels, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to jump on his coattails and become a part of, um, come into uh uh, union with him, and uh, you'll be seen as true Israel. As Isaiah 49, 6 says to the Messiah, you are my servant Israel. And so it's very clear the Messiah is called Israel in the Old Testament, and Jesus, that that, that prophecy itself is applied uh, to, to the gospel and to Jesus in Matthew 13, uh, 47, and Acts 26, and Second um, Corinthians 6, 2, and on, onwards. So, um, so that, that, that's a, maybe I should stop there. I've, I've said a lot. <laughs> no. Um, so reading the new Testament with what you were confronted with made you read the old Testament more, um, with all of the things you just discussed, I think you started to kind of explain inadvertently the title of your most recent book, which we've already mentioned, which is called the story retold. Can you explain that title? Uh, why did you guys come to that title? I think you were just talking about that, but um, explain that title to the listeners. Yes, you have the story, the, what we might call the biblical theological storyline of the Old Testament. And, um, and that, that storyline, if we had to put it into a sentence, would be something like um, God created uh, Adam and Eve, um, and created Adam, for example, to be a king and a priest. The Garden of Eden was the first temple, and really ultimately uh, kind of a garden temple palace that Adam was to reign in. And if he had been faithful, then he, uh, as a priest, he, he would have begun to bear children, of course, uh, and he would have begun, you know, when you have children, you know, a lot of people, uh, they begin to say, hey, we got to add on to our house. we got to remodel here. And so the garden would have gotten bigger and bigger, and his, his progeny produced other progeny. You, you begin to get an expansion of the garden. It's not just physical, but it's an expansion of God's tabernacling presence. And eventually, if everyone had been faithful, especially Adam, that that garden temple would have covered the whole earth. So that the goal was that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge and the presence of the glory of God. And uh, Adam and Eve failed. So they were created to do this, to be kings and priests. They failed. And so the rest of the storyline of the Bible is God working back toward finding uh, someone who will replace Adam to do the job and to become a faithful and perfect high priest, and establish that temple, and expand it to cover the whole world, so the whole world be covered by the glory of God. The glory of God is the end goal of, uh, of that, of that storyline. Some people abbreviate it this way, creation, fall, redemption, and I would add new creation for God's glory. We could, we could abbreviate it that way. Creation, 
fall, redemption, new creation for divine glory. What you just said that the, that Eden was seen as a temple. Can you help bring that down uh, to the stay-at-home mom? That Eden was a temple. You might want to prove that first with some references, but is there any daily significance for us? Or is it just a neat thought that we get to keep in our head that Eden was a temple? Yeah. Let me, let me keep that uh, question uh, in my back pocket just for a second and finish uh, the New Testament part. So that's the Old Testament storyline. The New Testament part is the retold. That is, how is it fulfilled? And so we're, the retelling really is telling how it is fulfilled. The story's been told in the Old Testament, but fulfillment has to be told. So if you will, the story's retold through the fulfillment. Now, your question is, first of all, um, and, and I'm going to reverse the questions, uh, is how do we know Eden's a temple? And secondly, how is that practical? And um, maybe one of the easiest things I could do was, you know, just to say that um, we know from later scripture that Eden was a temple. So we don't have to guess about it. In Ezekiel 28, it talks about an Adam figure. It says in 28, 13 of Ezekiel, you were in Eden, the garden of God. So it goes on, and explains him as a high priest with jewels all over him. It's amazing. So it's also an amazing text showing Adam as a priest. I don't think it's talking about Satan, but Adam. And, and, um, and then it goes on to say that um, this person in the garden, Adam, became sinful. Verse 18, by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So that shows he was in sanctuaries. And the temple is composed of sanctuaries. There's a holy of holies, and there's the uh, holy place outside the holy of holies, uh, which in this case was um, Eden, uh, the garden. Uh, the water is actually Eden itself. The fountain of water is Eden, representing the presence of God. And then you've got the holy place that's the garden. And then the outer court, what represents the outer court of the, uh, of the temple is uh, the unha- uninhabitable land outside of, of the Garden of Eden. And so uh, later temples were then built on that three-part structure, of holy place, uh, holy of holies, holy place, and then uh, outer court. And um, so there, there you, you can speak of the temple in the plural. And so when it says you uh, profaned your sanctuaries, it means that, you know, in, in the temple, Adam was in the temple and he, he sinned in the temple. So that's probably one of the clearest uh, texts that we can find in that regard. And uh, there are other things that we could say. If you look at, at the later temple, uh, it's modeled on Eden. You've got all these flower, uh, flowery um, uh, woodwork uh, of, of pomegranates and palm trees, and and you you even have cherubim in the midst of that. Why would you have that? Because there were cherubim in the Garden of Eden. And uh, as I said, the, Israel's temple is in three parts. There are a number of other uh, things I could bring up. But um, it, it, it is, it is, you know, if it, uh, uh, 
smells like a temple and it feels like a temple and um, yeah, then it probably is a temple. And Ezekiel 28 says it is, it is a temple. So, so that's the first temple. Now, a lot of people, that's a new thought that the idea that Eden is a temple. And by the way, here, I would uh, uh, suggest a, uh, a short book that I and one of my students has written called God Dwells Among Us, Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth by University Press. And that explains everything I've just talked about. And the, especially that book goes into a lot of practical application. Nice. So that's where I'll go right now, the practical application. Um, I think that, first of all, uh, if we're really believers, that, um, uh, and if you look at the New Testament, um, uh, Christ is seen as the new temple. He's seen to be what Eden really should have been from the beginning. Uh, he is, remember, the essence of the temple really is the very presence of God. Christ is the epitome of the very presence of God. And, of course, you might remember that John 2 uh, has Jesus saying, tear down this temple to the, to the religious rulers. Tear it down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And uh, it says the apostles thought he was talking about the physical temple. No, he was talking about him being the rebuilt temple. It says later they understood this. And so um, uh, Matthew 21 calls him the cornerstone of the temple. So he's the beginning of the new temple. And when we trust in him, we come into union with him and, and, and we become part of the temple. As First uh, Corinthians um, 3 says, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians 6 and uh, verse 14, you're a temple of the living God. So it's very clear that, that uh, believers are a temple. Why? Because they're in union with Jesus, who is the temple. He's a spiritual temple, and we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so um, uh, if we're really believers, then um, one of the things that we should be very careful about is to keep the temple clean. Uh, one of the functions of priests in the Old Testament was to keep the temple clean. And uh, after first, Second Corinthians 6.14 says we're a temple of the living God, just a few verses later in chapter seven, verse one, it says, therefore, having these promises, that is of the temple, I mean, we're the beginning fulfillment of temple promises. That's amazing. And beginning to have those promises, he says, let us cleanse ourselves of all defilement of uh, uh, flesh and blood, completing holiness in the Lord. Why does he say that? Because if you're the beginning of a temple, you've got to keep it clean. So uh, that, that, that's one thing we need to remember as Christians, that we're not just anybody living in any place. We're Christians sure. in union with Christ. Yeah, so, thank you. For so that, that, that's one application. That's another application is to realize that um, you're in the image of God. We know that from Genesis 1. We know that from um, Colossians chapter 3, where it talks about um, we put on the new man. Uh, renewed according to uh, the image of God, and so on. And so we're in the image of God. What do you do with images? You put them in temples. And so we yeah. are images in God's temple. So what difference does that make? Images are to reflect. We, it, we're in the presence of God. We're to reflect his glorious attributes. Um, he's patient. So if you're standing in line in the grocery store, and 
some elderly woman is fumbling through her purse and takes 10 minutes to uh, get the money out, um, you're going to get irritated or you're going to remember you're in the temple and you're going to reflect the patience of God as that wow. in his image. That's, that, 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 that's the practical that's, aspect. So we can talk many, many more applications. No, that's so good because so many people think the, the function, the task of, or the, the existence of a Christian is to engage themselves with like mass evangelism and busy themselves with a bunch of Christian activity, which we should do. Those are all good things. But you're saying like, just merely being the temple, like what you said is almost too easy for us. You're saying reflect the image of God by being patient. And in doing so, you're operating as like the most, just you're, you're operating out of your identity as a Christian. Like that is, that's the stuff of Christianity. And so along the lines, is as, it as correct? A priest in the temple. Well, let me just add, what I'm really saying yeah. is this. I'm not saying we're like a temple. A lot of Christians say, oh, when it says you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, you can't be because that's a structure. No, the essence of the temple is the living presence of God. That's how it continues in the New Testament. It's not metaphorical. That's really the true essence of the temple. And so Christians need to keep reading their Bibles every day. Why? To remind themselves that they're, where are they in the storyline of God? Well, the Old Testament uh, uh, said that there should be someone who eventually would build the temple and be a faithful high priest and a king. And Revelation says, we are kings and priests. Why? Because we're in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. the true uh, king and priest who uh, has built and resides in the temple. And so the storyline part of it is there was to be a bit, there was to be a temple in the latter days. We are part of that temple. And as we remember that, that's not just a cognitive idea. It has applications just like I was talking about. So I interrupted you. Go on. No, sorry. I, I was, what, um, when you're sort of saying like the temple is almost synonymous with the presence of God, if, if, if I heard you correctly. And I had two, yeah, questions, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. two questions about that. One, what would, before the fall, what would a day in the life of, say, Adam and Eve and God in the presence, what, what might that look like? I, we're not trying to speculate, but if you had any notions, and now on this side of that fall, where we're, where we're have where, where we are united with Christ. Um, how, how does that look, look like played out? Well, um, I tried to explain how it plays out, you know, with, with regard to being in the grocery store, I could give other examples of that. So or... I, I guess I mean more like the, the nature of that, um, like not so much the task or the mental reality, but like, so as far as like the, like me, I'm a, I'm a Christian man and I'm a temple. Um, and if we're saying temple is the presence of God. So what, so what truth am I telling myself, Jason, I'm walking around and I, and God is in me right now. Is the, it, it, that's it. And it's like, there you go. God's in me. And so yeah, remember that you're, you're an image and the very presence of God. And as we grow in our sanctification, that is, as we grow as Christians, as we increasingly put off sin, we will increasingly 
have that idea and that will influence the way we live. It can't help but influence the way we live. Let me give you an example. A doctor once asked me, a Christian doctor said, how can I, how can I focus, <clears throat> focus on the uh, presence of God every second? If I did that, I'd be a bad doctor because uh, I wouldn't be focusing on my patients and, and the minor surgeries that I do. And I said, well, I, I think uh, when, when I'm talking about uh, being in the presence of God and aware of that presence, uh, I, I, I'm thinking about um, reading the Bible. And then I, I just asked the question in front of the doctor, what do I mean by that? And I gave him an example of uh, <clears throat> a magazine. My wife used to get these women's magazines. There aren't too many of them anymore, but uh, uh, she used to get these women's magazines, and they always used to advertise perfume in those magazines. And so if you'd flip through, there would kind of be a fold-out, and the fold-out kind of was pasted together with the perfume. So when you open the fold-out, you would smell it. So one evening I was at the kitchen table and had that magazine. I said, you know, I'm going to smell that, that perfume. So I opened it up and I just had literally put my nose in it. And the rest of the evening I had that smell. Now I wasn't continually putting my nose in it, but the smell was with me. So here's what I'm saying. As you, why do we read the Bible every day? Well, we read it so that we're putting our nose in the aroma of God's presence. And when we, stop it and go about our duties. When we come to a decision to sin or not to sin, let's say it's a, a Christian student in 10th grade and the, all, of, all of the class is, is cheating on a test. And if you don't cheat, you'll make an F. And uh, if the teacher grades on the curve, you, you'll be last. In fact, some of the people that are cheating are Christians and it would be easy to rationalize it. Well, if you really are someone who's consistently in God's word, which is in his presence, uh, each day, that, that aroma will be with you. And that aroma of God's presence will, will, will be a kind of a reminder, hey, you're mine. You are a believer. And it should influence that student not to sin. But if, that, if there's no aroma, it's easy to go on. It's easy to go on and forget who you are. So um, I think that it's the same, and it's the same with, with you know, that's part of being in the, the tabernacling presence of God. And that should influence us in all the various ways that I mentioned, not only keeping ourselves ethically, ethically clean, uh, reflecting, you know, God's attributes as we walk, you know, throughout the day and, and so on. Now, with regard to the daily habits of Adam and Eve before they fell, I wish I knew what they were. Um, <clears throat> if you find out, let me know, and um, I'll encourage you to write a book on it. But um, they did podcasts we all day. We don't. We don't have much information. I can tell you a few things. Number one, uh, they were given one commandment: not to eat uh, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil for the day. They, they eat, uh, they shall surely die. So if you want to say that's two verses, one verse, whatever, um, they were to keep that in mind. And, and that, that, was, that was their scripture. They were to keep that in mind. And Adam is the high priest, should have been the one passing that on because he's the one who heard it. He heard it before he was even created. 
He's the one that should have passed it on as a faithful high priest and on to his children. Um, he, he didn't do that very well because if you note how Satan addresses Eve and how she responds in chapter three and verses one and following, she says um, uh, to the devil, she tries to remember the verse. And she says to the devil, um, uh, well, God said, if you eat, you'll, you'll die. Well, God did not say you'll die. He said, you'll surely die. In Hebrew, it's you'll die, die. She underplays the notion of judgment. Just like uh, she meant, maybe we might say she's the first liberal underemphasizing judgment. And, uh, and then she also says, you shall not eat it or touch it. God never said don't touch. She becomes the first legalist. And, um, and then it says, you may eat freely. That's what God said originally. She said, we may eat. She leaves the privileges off. And, and there's some other ways. So we have one of two choices. Either she was explicitly being a false teacher. I don't think that's the case. Or uh, she, was, she just didn't know the word very well. And uh, those points of difference are just too crucial to be meaningless, a meaningless paraphrase. So, um, so she didn't know the word and, and uh, is she blamed for it? Well, first Timothy two says she was deceived and um, Romans five says that Adam was blamed. Why? Because Adam was the chief priest. That's why. And um, so we know they should have, um, uh, you know, remembered the word. They did not do that. We know that uh, as they had children, they should have uh, reared their children in the word of God. Um, because remember, it says that they are to multiply. Well, multiply what? They were to multiply images. Uh, children who are in the image of God, who would reflect God. And eventually that would be a reflection of his glory. And as they fill the earth, that would uh, be the earth being filled with the glory of God, i.e. With, with Adam and Eve's progeny. So they were, they were to faithfully raise children. Um, of course, we know that the fall occurred before they had children. Um, likewise, the uh, tree called the knowledge of good and evil. Eve is told about that tree before the fall. And um, you could translate that, the knowledge of discerning between good and evil. That phrase, discerning between good and evil, is used of people later in the Old Testament, like Solomon as a king who was a judge and could discern between good and evil. And of, of other people in ruling positions or people who uh, uh, are in accountable positions to, to, to discern between good and evil. And so uh, I think the tree was sort of a symbol like Lady Justice that we find, you know, uh, on, on uh, court buildings and that sort of thing. I think they, that should have been a reminder to them that they were to be those who would discern between good and evil. And uh, one way they do that is to know the word. And of course, Satan comes in, contradicts the word, Eve doesn't do very well at it. I think Adam should have gone when the serpent comes into the garden. Adam shouldn't. Have, so this is what's going on before the fall. Adam should have been prepared to go to the judgment tree, the place of judgment, and discern between good and evil and pronounce judgment on the serpent in the name of the Lord. And I think that the serpent would have been judged at that point. 
and eschatology would have culminated in that point. Well, final judgment would have occurred then, and uh, and then you would have had you know new creation forever, uh, but that did not happen. Um, so those are a few thoughts about what would have happened you know before uh, before the fall. What did happen actually? So um... by the way, what that means. That means that the fall occurred before they partook of the fruit. So there's an already not yet fall. We don't even know how to handle that right now. <laughs> I don't even, whoa. Can you, can you hit, hit us with that again? <laughs> Eve didn't know the word of God, correct? And that was before they took, partook of the fruit, correct? So there was sin before they partook of the fruit, correct? Yeah. Well, did she so know partake, it? Partake, partake, partaking of the fruit was the consummation of their sin. It began earlier. Mm. And I think it began with Adam not being a faithful high priest, okay. expressed with Eve's uh, lack of knowledge of the word. Now, I, I have uh, you know some friends who disagree with me that, oh, that was just an innocent paraphrase. Um there, there, there are other problems in, in, in her quotation, but the three I mentioned are just at such crucial points that I think it's uh, very improbable that it's an innocent paraphrase. I just love that right now, probably 300, our first 300 listeners are just like texting their friends, writing, rewinding that because that is like, uh, man, I've never, I've never heard that. And I'm, well, if you yeah. never heard it, be careful. You want to make sure it's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's. Anyways, oh. anyways. Yeah. Go ahead, Joe. So, you talked about how Breaking Adam, up. as the priest, his job was to keep the temple clean, and he was. I, I, I base that. I base that on the fact that later priests were to do so, and I think they were modeled on him. The the keep until or the, those two words that are used uh, about the. Well, yes, that's very true. Those words there also, by the way, are words that um, uh, literally in Hebrew, it is to, um, uh, you know, the actual translation that that, that the typical Bible has is that um, uh, Adam should cultivate and keep it. Now, the word for cultivate in Hebrew can often mean serve, and the word for keep can mean keep or guard. So it's when those two words, by the way, in Hebrew, I'll pronounce them, one is abad and the other is shamir. When those two words are used together closely elsewhere in the uh, first five books of the Bible and, and later, uh, it refers to one of two things, either believers, Hebrew believers worshiping God or the priests serving in the temple. And so I think that the, these are at least words of worship, which is appropriate for a temple. Probably these are words for Adam in his priestly, because we know already Adam from Ezekiel 28 was a priest. And so uh, he has all these jeweled clothes upon him, which are references back to uh, uh Exodus 28, where the priest has the same jewels. So um, th- th- this was a priestly thing. Uh, priest, and, and elsewhere when these two words are used, it means serve 
and guard or serve and, and, and obey. So uh, thus, how about the cultivating here? Well, even if it's translated cultivate and guard, uh, the, the idea is um, serving the Lord by uh, keeping up the garden. We know in the ancient Near East that one of the tasks of priests in the courtyard, there were gardens. And part of their service to their God was to keep up the garden. So uh, even the cultivating there probably has notions, uh, even if it's translated cultivate, has notions of serving. But uh, the idea, it's possible to translate this passage, John Salehammer and others translated as serving and obeying, serving and guarding. And so that's priestly language. And yeah, the last part of it, the guarding would be, um, I think, keeping keeping the temple clean. And by the way, if snakes came into the temple, uh, priests should slay them. Um, Adam didn't slay the snake. The snakes were unclean. So um, the idea of temple isn't a small notion uh, in the Bible. It's throughout. I mean, it occupies so much of the Old Testament, and it does occupy a lot of the New Testament. If you're paying attention, uh, Romans culminates with uh, the concept of service in chapter 12. There's a lot of references to temple in the New Testament. Can you uh, briefly, or however long you want to talk about this is awesome, kind of talk about how Eden, because I'm trying to, I'm trying to give this truth to the listener who's building a pump and is annoyed that they're just stuck in a, a the corner of a factory doing something that seems mundane when they are actually, because they're in Jesus, they're a priest in the end temple and they're offering priestly duties even while they're making that pump. So Eden started as something, it then got on pause be, thanks to Adam and Eve and then God basically resuscitates Eden through Israel's temple. Yeah. Um, can you kind of show us the progression and the ultimate purpose of it started with Eden, uh, Adam and Eve there serving, and now we get to serve. Yeah. Uh, yes. You're, you're asking me, I have written a 400 page book called uh, the temple and the church's mission. And I condensed it into the book I just mentioned earlier uh, called God with us, expanding Eden to the ends of the earth. So I'll try to summarize that. <laughs> it's quite a task to do, but uh, uh, very briefly, I'll try to give a, a thumbnail sketch. Uh, what you have is after after Eden is uh, really, after Adam and Eve are excluded from Eden, um, what you have then is God begins to work back toward um, installing a faithful king priest in a temple. And um, let me, I've got to, I've got the wind blowing here from the bay and it's blowing my door pretty bad. So just a minute. It's the Shekinah, Dr. Beal. <laughs> it's the, it's the, it's the wind of Pentecost. <laughs> there we go. I hope that'll do it. Okay, um, so after Eden, and people are excluded from Eden, what God does, he begins working back toward uh, a new creation with a faithful king priest. So he does that with Noah. Uh, if you really think about the ark, for example, and not all commentators agree with this, but, but I, I think it's probably true. 
you look at the ark, it's in three parts. Why would it be in three parts? Well, I think because it's modeled after the temple. This is the presence of God during the flood, the chaotic flood. And um, it's the first time where there's the distinction between clean and unclean animals, which became crucial later for Israel's temple. In fact, the Greek word for ark is the very word in Greek that's used for the ark of the covenant in the holy of holies. Now, the Hebrew word is different. The Greek word, though, is the same. Um, and, by the way, um, uh, Adam is pro- uh, Noah's probably a priest. Uh, remember when he gets off the ark, he offers up, he, goes, he builds an altar and offers up a, uh, uh, an offering uh, of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And, in fact, that he is to replicate what Adam did twice in Genesis 8 and 9 he is given the exact commission that Adam was given. Genesis 1.28 is applied to him twice, where it says, you know, um, rule and subdue. Um, and, and, and then uh, 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 be faithful, uh, multiply and increase and fill the earth. And so um, it's very clear that Noah is another Adam figure. Now, we're not going to call him second Adam. The reason we're not going to call him second Adam is because the New Testament reserves that for Christ. He's second Adam or last Adam, but he is an Adam figure pointing forward because he fails, as we know. Uh, He and his sons, uh, they sin, and so that temple goes away, But, but that was the beginning of a new creation. You think about it, the waters begin to recede from the earth, and um uh, actually, uh, Adam is, is, is to rule over a new creation as a king priest. He didn't because of sin. Well, what happens then? Well, then uh, we get the Tower of Babel, and we get uh, Abraham. And what does Abraham do? Well, if you read beginning Genesis 12 on up to Genesis 21, uh, Abraham uh, goes up to a mountain and uh, builds an altar and... Uh, cries out in the name of the Lord, is the Hebrew expression, uh, in terms of worship. And uh, often there's even uh, a tree or trees that, that, that are mentioned. And um, there are a number of other uh, parallels. That they're, they're also, Abraham and others, are given the commission of Adam. And from Genesis 1.28, just as um, um, Noah was. And so, um, so Abraham goes up to different mountains. Uh, Isaac and Jacob do the same. They act like priests. And um, there are all these parallels with the Garden of Eden um, in, in those descriptions. And so what's happening is they're building, they're beginning to build on a small scale, these small sanctuaries, uh, because the presence of God is mentioned as being there. Uh, in, in one case, the heavens open and stairs uh, go down from heaven. And uh, in, in that case, in Genesis 28, uh, uh, the text says that uh, this is the place of the temple. And from this place, the temple will be expanded. So, so the patriarchs, they, um, they build all these little sanctuaries in the promised land. Why do they do that? Because it's pointing toward the big sanctuary that will be built in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, you, you, you then get, after the patriarchal sanctuaries, you then get the uh, Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is a mountain temple. 
uh, it's in three parts. Uh, the top part is the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is, and only the high priest Moses can go. The middle part, the 70 elders can go. They're like priests, just as priests could go to the holy place. That's equivalent to the holy place. And by the way, remember the burning bush? That's in the middle part. That probably represented the lampstand that was in the holy place of the temple. And then the bottom part of the temple was where all Israel could, could be and where uh, uh, the altar was and sacrifice was. It's very clear that uh, 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 Sinai uh, was a three-part mountain temple that really was the design then for the tabernacle and for the later um, for, for the later uh, temple in Jerusalem. But why, why have a mountain temple? Because Eden was on a mountain. Eden was the first mountain temple. And uh, so then, so, so you, you know, you finally get to uh, all of these things pointing toward the Jerusalem temple. Uh, it's built, uh, looks like the apex, looks like Solomon's going to succeed. He's pictured as Adam in the book of Kings. It's amazing. Uh, for example, why is it that uh, Solomon was an expert in zoology. Um, well, because Adam could name all the animals. He was an expert in zoology. And so that's just one little uh, idea. That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> please don't have the to uh, add those little... That, that, that Solomon is pictured as an Adam figure. Even part of the commission from Genesis 28 is applied again to um, Solomon. But Solomon fails. He becomes an idolater, uh, just as uh, Adam and Eve became idolaters. Really, they, they began to commit themselves to the serpent and not to God. They became like the serpent. See, what you worship, what you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. They began to commit themselves to the serpent. They became deceptive, just like the serpent did, and it ruined them. And... Um, now, God comes and he says, look, if you commit yourself to me in Christ, uh, they say, uh, revere me and uh, you'll resemble me for, for restoration. So once uh, you get Solomon sinning, the kingdom's divided, they begin to sin. Finally, you get the Assyrian deportation of northern Israel, followed eventually by the deportation of southern Israel and the destruction of the temple. Then you get prophecies while they're in exile. The temple will be rebuilt. It's rebuilt, but it's so pathetic that the elders who remember the first temple cry. And um, so, you know, is, is, that, is that the eschatological temple that, that we're hoping for? Because that was supposed to be big and huge, according to Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, the prophecy of the temple there. Uh, so may, maybe it's possible they're beginning with a small temple again, and it's going to grow just as Eden would. But no, um, they try to expand it, by the way. When Herod comes along, he makes it bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, but it's very sinful. And um, the largeness of it is just pseudo and nothing. And so uh, it's likely, in fact, that in the Holy of Holies, God had left the Holy of Holies uh, uh, from the time of um, probably he, he didn't even take up residence there when they returned from exile. And so um, uh, when you come to the New Testament, we start again. I'm going to start with a new creation, with Jesus, and uh, his resurrection is a new creation. By the way, how do you and I partake in a new creation? Ultimately, in, in the end times, it's by a new body. 
Now we begin to get that new creation. We become begin, begin, uh, when we trust in Christ, we become spiritually a new creation. And then the culmination of that is a bodily new creation. So Christ inaugurates new creation in his resurrection, and he inaugurates the temple as well. And uh, he establishes that. And uh, it's not a structure now. It, it is uh, uh, basically God has come out of the Holy of Holies in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you want to identify with the true, te- true temple, you identify with the one who's come out of the Holy of Holies. And uh, you identify with him. Now, we're not completely identified with the temple. Uh, uh, if, if, if Christ uh, um, revealed himself fully to us as the holy of holies God, we would all die immediately because we're sinful. So we've begun to be the temple. We've entered into the, uh, to the holy place, okay? Basically, we've, but we're not in the holy of holies yet. That, that'll only happen in the new heavens and earth. When chapter 21 and 22 of uh, Revelation say, our name uh, will be on our heads and we'll be in the face of God. We'll have the name on the head as the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies. So we'll finally reach that. But right now we're lampstands, okay? Revelation says we're lampstands in the holy place. So, uh, and that's the grace of God, so we're not destroyed. Yeah. So, but we are priests and kings, Revelation 1, 6 and 5, 10 says. So, um, so that that's the thumbnail sketch. It probably was too long, but um, and there are a lot of holes there. But that's that's what I call the the rough draft thumbnail sketch without attaching too many scripture verses. Thank you for that. I I bet everyone wants you to say that, and you're like, ah, oh, where's my coffee? So I appreciate you sharing that. And I would like the the uh, the listener to realize that. Um, what Dr. Bill, Bill did there was was biblical theology and tracing this theme. And in the book, you said, at the beginning of each major section of the book, um, the authors also attempt to isolate one particular thread that runs from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Um, often we bring Genesis 1 through 3 or some aspect of Israel's career to bear on the New Testament passage. And so, um, like like Joe mentioned earlier, um, the book that they wrote, each uh, there's a dedicated chapter to each book. And in the beginning of those chapters, they, they trace some of these themes. And so I appreciate you giving us an example of that right there. And we do want to point our listeners towards that. Um, we had about 48 other questions, but it looks like our time's running out. I just wonder if I might <laughs> ask you one final one. And that is um, when, um, what is in it for God? Like, you know, the, the Trinity um, you know, we might not know before creation or like, you know, we might know it from revelation where he says, you know, I'll be their God and they'll be my people. What is, what is in it for God as he's like, I'm going to create some image bearers. Um, and, and I'm going to make a place called the earth and it's going to be my sanctuary. Well, one time around the table, when our kids were growing up, we have three children, two daughters and a son. One of our daughters asked at one point when we were talking about predestination. And, uh, and so my daughter said, well, if God plans it, why does it have to happen? Why don't he just plan it and immediately it happens? Why, why do we have to go through all of this? And um, so my wife, who designs and does needlework patterns, 
She said, you know what? When I design a pattern, when I plan it, what I enjoy is not just planning. I love and I take pleasure in accomplishing it. And so it's the pleasure of God to accomplish what he has planned. And, and he glorifies himself. He loves it. He takes a wonderful joy in it. Here, I'll footnote John Piper, Desiring God. If your readers haven't read, read Desiring God by John Piper, that's the answer to your question, and they need to read it. Do you think there's something to um, the father loves the son? He has eternally loved his son, and he just wants to take other children and adopt them and make them look like his son. He enjoys looking at his son so much that he wants to make more images of his, his son to delight him. I think that's a beautiful elaboration of what I just said. I think we could elaborate in a lot of different ways, but I love that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Um, there's a lot of wisdom there. So we really just want to actually point the listeners to the book because sometimes like when you hear that, you almost might get discouraged. You're like, how did he see all that? Man, the burning bush, the holy holies. The, oh, when he says it, you're like, oh yeah, that makes complete sense. But we might not arrive there. So it is helpful to pick up books like this, you know, so we could sort of see how it's done and begin to do it ourselves. So we thank you for taking the time. Um, yeah, very much appreciate it. And go out and grab the story retold. We appreciate it very much, and we'll uh, hopefully talk to you yeah. down the road. Just remember that uh, you're an image in the temple of God, and uh, you're reflecting Him in whatever you do. Thank you very much. Be well, Doctor. Okay, good to talk. We'll see you. Bye. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to leave behind.